It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines, a panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. All right, we're talking sports today with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. Lee, how you doing? It has been an unbelievable week covering sports in Southern California. Good stories and bad stories. John, we have a lot of topics on the table to get to. <laughs> you know, I am still buzzing from last night watching the ball game on, on TV. Soto, Bell, Drury. I mean, it was unbelievable, the energy at Petco. Historic week in the history of Padre Baseball. When you go back, this franchise did dabble in free agency way back when Ray Kroc owned the team. I remember being on the East Coast and looking at small market San Diego and the ownership was making deals to get Goose Gossage and Greg Nettles and just a whole bunch of really good players. Didn't really work out tremendously successful in terms of being a World Series contender. And then in the middle of the Kevin Towers era, when he was general manager, that ownership group kind of dove into making deals to get players to rent them. Here came Kevin Brown, the ace of the pitching staff, and they became a World Series team for a couple times. And now this, and what Peter Seidler has just done with A.J. Preller and the investments they've made and the trades they've executed, this is historical. I tried to go back and research at the trade deadline in the history of modern-day baseball, not the Babe Ruth era, <laughs> of, of a significant deal with the depths of the talent that the Padres acquired. And the only two names they could come up with was when the Texas Rangers traded Alex Rodriguez to the New York Yankees, in which was, in essence, a giveaway because they couldn't re-sign him. And what the New York Mets did back in the 70s, where they gave up Tom Seaver, the Hall of Fame pitcher, to the Cincinnati Reds in what turned out to be an ugly contract dispute. Those are the only two trading deadline deals that involved superstars at that time. And what the Padres just did here, John, was absolutely amazing. And yeah, this franchise has electrified the city again. Now, we still got 60 games to play. This Dodger series is dead in the spotlight right in front of us. So this will be an interesting weekend to make a statement as to how good, how complete the Padres are. But you're right. What an electric couple of days in San Diego. Yeah, I mean, I was watching on TV. I mean, Gallagher Square was shoulder to shoulder. I mean, it was to the seams busting. I mean, it was unbelievable. So uh, let's, let's get into the, you know your topics on the table. I mean, you, tell me your thoughts on this big Juan Soto trade, how it all breaks down. What do you think, Lee? Juan Soto is an iconic player. He has done more statistically by age 23, John, than anybody since Ted Williams. And that's saying a lot. Mm -hmm. You look at every metric in his batting order, and he's just at the top of the charts. And he's 23 years of age, and he hits with power. He puts the ball in play, runs the bases with abandon, and then he just turns around, and he just makes things happen defensively too. Uh, it, it is, it's amazing what's happened here there is so much anger and resentment what's going on back in Washington right now that they gave up this player. Now, not everybody's signing on to this whole deal. Uh, the sports website, The Athletic, Ken Rosenthal, their senior baseball writer, he wrote a rather critical column of the Padres that, quote, this was sensational, but this is not sustainable, making reference to all the players they gave up in all these trades they made at the deadline and the amount of money they have committed 
because it's still a small market franchise. I was a little taken back because everybody I've spoken to said this is fabulous for baseball. It's fabulous for San Diego. But Ken Rosenthal just does not think it's a good business model. But at the end of the day, it's not Lee Hamilton's money. It's not John Riley's minor league farm system. It's owned by Peter Seidler and executed by A.J. Preller. Soto is a tremendous player. And now you look at that batting order. Please tell me who you're going to pitch around in the Padre batting order once they get Fernando Tatis back. They will be a complete team. And if El Nino can be what El Nino used to be before all these injuries with Machado and then obviously with Soto and what they just got with Josh Bell, this is going to be fun to watch because we got August, we got September, and pal, we're going to be playing baseball in October. How deep we go, that's another topic on the table, but what what a present uh, for San Diego fans. And what a piece of legacy that I think that Peter Seidler has now developed in, in, in terms of the big picture of all he's done as the ownership of this franchise. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think it's fantastic. I mean, they gave up a lot to get a lot. So, you know, five years down the road, we'll look at it in the rearview mirror. But I think it was the right move to make right now. I mean, and I think also we'll talk about the second guy that came in this deal. Let's talk about Josh Bell. He's a self-made player, very productive, power hitter, former outfielder converted to first base. He arrives. The other first baseman is moved in a separate trade. Josh Bell has made himself a power hitter. He's hitting 301. He hits with power and authority to all fields. Uh, he's big and he's physical. He's really developed. He was a young player in Pittsburgh in a bad situation, did not have a lot of players around him. He wound up being let go. Goes to Washington and just really develops. And and they didn't have a good franchise the last year and a half, and yet he has really become a complete baseball player. So think about this. The Padres get two big bats to stick in the middle of that lineup around all these other guys. And, John, you and I talked about this on our podcast last week. These guys make everybody else in that batting order more dangerous because those other guys are going to get much better pitches to hit because you don't want to put guys on base with Soto and Josh Bell coming up in the lineup. So you look at this batting order, and if they can get Tatis back by the middle of the month, Wow, who are you going to pitch around? What an acquisition. I would have never thought, in all honesty, that they would have been able to execute this trade. And then I was shocked that a second big bat was part of the deal in addition to Soto's bat. And these are two high-character guys. I mean, I was really impressed with um, with Bell at the com- at the press conference yesterday. And then, you know, Soto was great, too. But there's these are two fine young men. How classy was it for Soto to take out an ad in the Washington Post to thank the Washington fans for their support, and to thank the Nationals and their general manager, Mike Rizzo. He says, it's the business of baseball. I didn't enforce this. They felt they had to do it. Of course, at at the base of the conversation is they never got a contract extension done because the agent, Scott Boros, the super agent, Scott Boros, the terrorist, Scott Boros, (laughs) would not give Washington a counterproposal but Washington offered him 15 years, $440 million, and Boris said, no, we're not taking that. So at the end of the day, the Padres have rented a superstar for at least three years. They got three pennant races, what's left of this season and the following two seasons. Now, where we are three years from this afternoon remains to be seen. Do they sign him to an extension? Does Boris ask for 
a half billion dollars in the next contract extension? Do they trade him right before the deadline three years from now if they decide they can't pay that kind of money? But between now and then, pal, they got pennant races and games to be played and postseason games, and he's going to be the focal point of this offense. And this is just terrific. And and I just want to just notify the audience, you know, we are live streaming on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. That means that you can participate in the live stream. Just get on the chat, type in your comments and questions. They'll appear here on our screen. And if you've got a question for Hacksaw you can or comments, just let us know, type them in, and we'll read them on the air. Um, but, you know, Preller wasn't done. I mean, he made some deals like the day before. Well, I never expected the Milwaukee transaction to occur, and nobody in Milwaukee expected this and has gotten an explanation of why you'd trade Josh Hader. Now, this is the top reliever in baseball. This guy's got a vibrant fastball. This guy has a workhorse. It's not one batter and done. It's not one inning and out. This guy can get you two inning saves. Huge strikeout guy. Uh He's got 125 saves in his career in Milwaukee, and he didn't pitch on great teams for the most part. He's averaging, get this, 15 strikeouts per nine innings. Wow. He's got electric stuff, and the guy's not afraid to pitch back-to-back and has not had injury problems, etc. And they got him for a couple more years. He's got two years left on his contract. Nobody saw this deal coming, but... That's A.J. Preller, the general manager's making deals in the middle of the night. And then, of course, you know, the, the, the late trade as they got to the deadline where they picked up Brandon Drury, who had been kind of a journeyman, who had resurrected his career and hit a bunch of home runs in Cincinnati. And all of a sudden, the guy who had been in Arizona and other places becomes marketable with the Cincinnati Reds because he played in a small stadium, comes here and the first pitch he sees at Petco Park <laughs> He launches a grand slam home run. So that's that's a really interesting acquisition, too. But uh, Hader replaces a guy who's just really struggled. And I think people had figured out Taylor Rogers, who had been in Minnesota that they got in the offseason. You know, Rogers was phenomenal. He had 19 innings without a run at the start of the season when he compiled his 19 saves. And since then, he had an ERA of over eight. And he had no bite on a slider. His control went away. So it's a it's a big setback for him. He goes to Milwaukee. They've already got a closer, so I don't know that he's going to be placed in that situation. Interesting to see what the Brewers get out of him. But he gave him a good half a season here at Petco Park. But at that point in time, ran out of gas, couldn't pitch, and they got rid of him because I just don't think that they could trust him. So he's gone too. Wow. I mean, we're just glad to have him here in San Diego. Welcome to San Diego, Josh Hader. But, you know, the the way this this whole week lined up, it seemed like every day there was some major announcement from the Padres. Well, let's just kind of run through the list. Joe Musgrove gets the phenomenal contract extension. We knew that was coming. Uh, this is a guy that was making $8 million a year, self-made guy. So happy for him. Hometown boy makes good. Goes from eight million that he was earning, he's going to get twenty million a year next year for the next five seasons, and he's become a complete pitcher. And I think that's something that really needs to be addressed. He started in Houston, and was at the back end of their rotation. He went to Pittsburgh, which is the Pirates are in forever rebuild mode, and they gave him the ball and said, "You're the number one starter." Did well at times, didn't do well at times. Had only a five hundred record. Comes here, gifted with all the support he has in the batting order. And he comes storming out of the gate. He, I mean, he was 8-0 and to start the season. 
Uh, and he's become a scientist. He's become a student of the game. I think he's just he's a real baseball intellectual. And the fact that he's from Grossmont, from El Cajon, how cool is that? And he wanted to be here. And nobody's brought this up, and they should. If he had gone on the open market, John, he probably could have gotten $25 million per year. He elected to stay here. I'm, I'm not going to say he took a San Diego discount like Tony Gwynn used to take, but he's pitching here for 20 and didn't want to go on the open market because he wanted to pitch at home. So that's that's a huge story there. Now, other moving parts, we said goodbye to Eric Hosmer. He's gone to Fenway Park in Boston at the last minute. Hosmer refused to waive the no-trade clause to go to Washington. Uh, there, I think there were nine teams that he could say no to. So the Padres said, okay, you're not going. We're not going to pay you more money to waive the no-trade clause. Your contract is your contract. Is that your signature on that contract? <laughs> so they wound up sending him to Fenway. Red Sox are in the middle of a little bit of a rebuild mode. He goes back to the American League where he had decent success back in the day with Kansas City. I think the big story with Eric Hosmer is he underachieved. They overpaid. Uh, he was one of the first ingredients when A.J. Preller got here. So I think the philosophy is he had to overpay to get guys to come to San Diego, the weather notwithstanding. He had to overpay to get some of these guys. Manny Machado came here because he got $30 million a year. Mm-hmm. Osmer came here because he got $20 million per year. But he didn't play like a $20 million a year guy. Uh, he did not hit for power. There was not a lot of consistency. Uh, his batting average over his stay in San Diego was only two fifty nine. That's mm. a lot of singles for a guy making $20 million a year. And his gold glove at times was erratic. Uh, so they, the writing was on the wall when they wound up getting Josh Bell. Hosmer had to go somewhere. I'll be intrigued to see, though, how he holds up at Fenway Park. Intrigued to see how he, quote, deals with the pressure. Because playing in San Diego is kind of easy. Playing in Kansas City, where they've lost and lost and lost, with rare exception, there wasn't a lot of criticism. He's going to Boston. He's going to Fenway Park. He's going to play in front of unbelievable crowds, and he's going to have to deal with a fairly critical media. Boston's a tough place to be as a player if you're not doing well. Good guy. I just think he underachieved. I'm not going to say it was a mistake. John, they had to had to start spending money somewhere, and they gave it to him, and they gave it to Machado. Manny's worked out. Eric, he was here, but I, I just don't think it, it turned out very well. And then let's let's get to the general manager because this is the trigger man in this whole thing. Uh, I like AJ Preller. Uh, he's from my hometown, right next to me on Long Island, so I've known him a long time. Uh, the guy is not scared. The guy is bold. The guy is brazen. Now I've written some critical columns on my website about him burning through all the currency that Peter Sattler gave him. Uh, the, the favorite phrase, John, you heard this. I gave him an open checkbook and he overspent it. <laughs> uh, the amount of money that he has gone through to try to construct this roster and the, and the mistakes he's made and the failures they've had along the way. So uh, he has to be held accountable. But this this could be the, the, the fitting piece of legacy that he finally built this thing into a team that has the potential to get to the World Series. Uh, he's traded away virtually all of his number one draft picks. And they had high picks because the team was so bad for a chunk of time, John. He dealt away a ton of players that, quote, he overpaid to get here. 
He's still got a bunch of guys in the farm system who he gave big signing bonus money to that have not panned out. And at the end of the day, I went through and compiled the list. And in the last four-plus years, A.J. Preller has traded away 40 prospects. 40! It's an absolute staggering number of young guys that they drafted and signed or signed from the the international free agent ranks. 40 players he's he's dealt away. But like I say, he's got no fear. He doesn't care about criticism. I do subscribe to his philosophy of boots on the ground. You know, they found so many good players because they got so many scouts. They may have more scouts than anybody in Major League Baseball. So he's got a philosophy of, of finding guys, signing guys, overpaying for guys, hoping these guys get here, and using guys as as trade bait. So it's interesting. He's the catalyst. He's the creative genius behind this whole thing. One in the history of mankind for people in San Diego, have we ever had a trading deadline period where you say, wow, we just got an MVP iconic young star and we just got the best reliever in baseball and now we have a team that could be playing in the World Series in October. When has that ever happened in San Diego in the past? We'd always, John would always have one good young player or one star and then just a bunch of guys surrounding that, that star. So this is what an exciting time for Potter Baseball. I, I credit Seidler and I credit Preller for giving him and he having the fortitude to go find the right players to make the deal. You know, I, I love Preller's boldness. I, I think he's an exciting guy. And you know what? He can always reload the minor league system. He can rebuild the pipeline because, like you said, of all those scouts, they're going to keep backfilling and he's going to keep you know, adding assets to the organization. Lost in the conversation this week because of the excitement of this week is a piece of reality. They have blown through the luxury tax for a second year in a row at this point. And the, the contracts they inherited are much larger than the contracts they let go. And by the way, they paid all $44 million on Hosmer's contract. Whew. They paid Boston to take this guy. They got a couple minor leaguers back. but So their luxury tax bill is going to be phenomenal. And I guess that spins back then to what Ken Rosenthal in The Athletic wrote about, you know, this is sensational, but this is not sustainable. You can't do business like this on a year-by-year basis in a small market like San Diego. So fun, real fun, but wow. But wow. You know, you know last time you were here, I remember we were talking – about the NFL. You're an NFL junkie, you said. And training camps are open. I mean, tell me what's going on in the NFL. Well, the big story in the NFL this this middle of the week is the Deshaun Watson suspension. Uh, the independent arbitrator, uh, the discipline officer, Sue Richardson, suspended him for six games without pay for his egregious activity as it relates to sexual misconduct with 26 women. Six games. Uh, she heard evidence from both sides. I was really surprised it was only six games because it was significant, the testimony and the documentation that was given about him seeking sex from all those massage therapists. And I, I think the thing that stuns me the most is he's been in denial that he did anything wrong. And he's been kind of hypocritical of himself by the things that he has publicly said in Cleveland, where he had just been traded, that I did nothing wrong. But yesterday he said, 
I'm going to try to find my new true self. Well, if you did nothing wrong, why are you telling me you need a new true self? And and the I, I read the 16-page decision by the discipline officer, and the judge indicated that he lied to her about what was happening during this massage therapy because the evidence showed one thing, and he said, no, that never happened. Well, the therapist said it did happen, that he showed no remorse whatsoever in the face-to-face hearings with her. So they hand down a six-game suspension. The union promptly announces, we'll accept it. We're not going to appeal it. The NFL comes back on Thursday and says, we are appealing it. We have a right to appeal. These sanctions are not enough. The NFL wanted a 12-game suspension and an $8 million fine for what he did. They called it egregious sexual assault. That's what they accused him of being involved in. So the written appeal has now gone uh, to the judge. Uh, The judge will turn it over to an independent arbitrator that will reevaluate all the evidence that was presented. There's no more hearings. There's no more new evidence that can come in the front door. What was said in those hearings before that discipline officer is what the independent arbitrator will now evaluate, and then he'll make a ruling as to whether it's six, as was decided, or whether it's 12 plus an $8 million fine. Uh, He can't change the decision. He can only decide one or the other. And this is going to create a mess because I think the union is now going to take action against the NFL in court. I think the union's theory is you've just undermined the whole process by not accepting what the discipline officer recommended. So story far from over. He's gone at least six. Maybe it's it's 12 plus a massive fine. Because remember, he sat out last year in Houston, but he got his full salary. He got $10.5 million. Uh, so it's a big, big story. Now, he's not getting off scot-free on this. He owes a million two in legal fees to the lawyers who fought this case on his behalf. He's reached agreement out of court uh, on, I think it's now 24 of the lawsuits that were filed. I was told that it's in excess of $4.5 million, these settlements. Each person got the same amount of money. Uh, but And he's losing salary because he won't play this year. So... We don't know the end result of this, except we do know that opening day on Labor Day weekend, the Cleveland Browns will have a different quarterback, and it'll be a journeyman. And Cleveland will really struggle on offense without Deshaun Watson. And his career effectively is, is, has been smeared. I don't know how anybody in Cleveland, as excited as they are, that this Pro Bowl quarterback is going to be part of a franchise, how anybody in Cleveland could look at this guy and think, this is a good guy. And the Browns, They'll have their 33rd different starting quarterback opening day since 1999. I mean, mm. it's been a black hole in Cleveland for an extended period of time. But uh, good player, obviously bad guy. And being in denial the way he has and how he conducted himself in the hearings, I think I think really offended uh, the judge. Because what she wrote in the 16-page report, some pretty harsh descriptions of who this guy is and how he acted in front of me. Well, how could the Browns front office trade for this guy or or sign for the guy knowing what was known at the time of the deal? The history of the National Football League, John, teams will take troubled players if they can still play and contribute. Mm. And they'll try to work around all their shortcomings. 
you know, the funny, funny phrase in Cleveland at the end of last year when they decided that they were going to trade for Deshaun Watson and they were going to get rid of Baker Mayfield. The, the, the funny comment that was made was, well, we needed an adult in the quarterback room. But what do you got? You got a sexual pervert who's now been suspended. But that's the history of the league. If you're a good player, they'll find a way to work with you. And I don't know whether he's going to counseling or whether that's going to be part of this equation, but uh, Cleveland Cleveland gave an enormous amount of money. Cleveland paid the going rate for a star player. Uh, this guy is, is going to sit a chunk of the season, if not the whole season, and the Browns will still have another four years of his contract at mega money. But he will have sat two full seasons now if, if this thing goes through and the NFL wins the appeal case. Wow. Well, I mean— We've talked Padres. We've talked the NFL. I mean, there's a lot going on, but we got a sad piece of news this week. Well, we got a couple pieces of sadness to talk about. And let's spin back to baseball and let's talk about the passing of the voice of the boys of summer. I'm talking about Vin Scully. Uh, A a brief story. Um, I grew up in a baseball family. Uh, My dad was a pitcher in the athletics system. The last year he played right after the war, uh, he was in Vero Beach. One of the biggest thrills of my life was I got to go to Vero Beach to do my sports talk show. Mm. The station sent me there for a week covering Dodger baseball. And here I am walking the hollowed grounds of Vero Beach where my dad was after World War II. So that was cool. I'm a baseball historian. So I'm there might have been the first day, and I'm walking the grounds and walking around the stadium, and I see across the way from me Vin Scully with mm-hmm. a couple of people. So Vin is talking to them. He finishes up, and he starts walking towards me, and he yelled at me across the lawn, hacksaw. <laughs> I didn't know that he knew me. I wow. mean, I never gave thought to the fact I was on a 77,000-watt signal at extra 690, and he'd hear me every day or whenever he listened. So he knew who I was. So I, I shook hands, introduced myself. He kind of he said, yeah, I know who you are and what you do, and welcome to Dodger Town. And I told him how thrilled I was to be there and told him a story about my family and all that. My, my uncle was also a baseball beat writer that covered the old Brooklyn Dodgers in the 1930s. He was a very significant baseball beat writer and then went off to World War II and became very, very important in, in the coverage of the Pacific Theater with MacArthur. So... I, I said, hey, would you have some time to sit and talk? I'd love to do an interview with you. I had never interviewed him before. He said, I have this to go to. I said, how about I'll meet you over at Holman Stadium in a half hour? No, Holman Stadium was just down the, the yard. So I went and sat. Vin Scully and I talked for 40 minutes. We sat there, and I interviewed him about his career, interviewed him about Brooklyn Dodger baseball, interviewed him about Los Angeles Dodger baseball, interviewed him about the stars, the personalities, etc. He was so generous of his time. And I flipped that around and used it on my talk show. And I, I think the most amazing thing to me was this was a superstar who was not a superstar to deal with. And as a talk show host, John, I've interviewed every big name there has been in sports in my era. Good people, bad people, crazy people, whatever. And this was just one one astounding individual, gem of a person. And we just talked about a wide variety of things as it relates to the history of baseball. Understand, I grew up on Long Island. I grew up in the era of the Yankees and the Dodgers and the New York Giants. 
And I told him, I said, I am so thrilled when we got done with the interview. I said, I'm so thrilled to have had this chance to talk to you. Because I said, the, the legends in the broadcast booth, I've interviewed them all. From Jack Buck to Harry Carey to Bob Prince to our own Jerry Coleman. I said, this is really special. So it's sad, 94 years of age. Um, he he was a poet. He was an artist. He was a historian. And he was a gem of a human being. So, But age 94, he lived a great life and he saw an absolute ton of things. And he's revered uh, by the fans. He's revered by Major League Baseball. And he's revered by those of us in the media that cross paths with him. What a special, special guy he was. Wow. I mean, I grew up a Giants fan. I'm a Padre fan. But I love Vin Scully, you know, because he is so special. I mean, he, like they say, the radio guys, they can they can paint the picture. And they can, they're can they wonderful storytellers. And, and, that, and Vin was a great guy, you know, so. I was a kid when I grew up. Yeah. I grew up on Long Island. And on Sundays, we'd go to the beach right on Long Island Sound. And you could walk up and down the beach at that, that period of time, and you could hear all the baseball games because you had Yankee fans who were listening to Mel Allen <laughs> and Dodger fans listening to the young Vin Scully and Connie Desmond and Giant fans listening to Les Kiter. And I laughed with Vin, and I said, I interviewed all those guys. I think there's 36 broadcasters and journalists who have been enshrined in the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown and the media wing. And I, th- I was at the Hall of Fame two years ago, and I counted. I think I interviewed 21 of the 36 guys in the Hall of Fame because I, I love the media. I love, love being around those guys. But, oh, was he so special. And now the Dodgers are wearing a special patch yeah. on, on their shoulder with a picture of a microphone and his name, Vin on the patch, but uh, we won't see anybody like this come this way again. Amazing. Now, the other name we have to remember, and this guy changed the world. I'm talking about legendary Boston Celtics center Bill Russell, and he passed away at the age of 88. And you talk about a man that changed the game and a man that changed a lot of things as it relates to the world. It's this guy. I'd say Bill Russell was the second coming of Jackie Robinson. Not just as a great talent, but what he did socially as it relates to blacks, African Americans, as it relates to minorities, what he did in terms of industry. When he spoke, people listened. Uh, Six foot ten. The first big man in basketball was George Mikan with the old Minneapolis Lakers. And he was good. Bill Russell was the next big man And he really changed the game, changed the game with defense, changed the game with offense, changed the game with a fast break basketball, John. Uh, When you look at his statistics of of averaging 15 points in 22, get that, 22 rebounds a game. Mm -hmm. He brought the big man into the NBA. And then, of course, after Bill Russell came Will Chamberlain, and then it it became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and then it became Willis Reed and all the other great big, big men who followed and un- understand his approach to life had to do a lot with social injustice because he grew up dirt poor Louisiana, and he was victimized. Now, he was a smart guy, and he went to a Catholic school at the University of San Francisco, and they won, the at that point, the NCAA tournament two years in a row with him and K.C. Jones. This is before March Madness. 
So he came to the NBA where blacks were really not significant players, and he became really significant, and he opened the door for so many other great African Americans because here came Oscar Robertson and all these other guys. I think the other thing is unique about Bill Russell. He played in a city that was known as being racist. Um, if you go back and you, if you research black players in Boston have had a lot of critical things to say about that city and their treatment of African Americans. And he did this in the 50s into the 60s. It was absolutely amazing because he became a man on behalf of social justice. And I, I think on, on top of that is he also, a lot of people fail to realize this, he was the first black head coach in the NBA. Hmm. He was a player coach at the end of his career in Boston. I think he played 15 years, went to Seattle, did very well with the Supersonics, wound up his career in Sacramento. He was the first African-American head coach in the NBA. You open the, open the doors and look how many minorities coaching the NBA. It's 75 to 80% now. So he pioneered so many things and smart man. Never had the chance to interview him, read one of his biographies. Uh, he just had great influence on players, teammates, the game, and then what he did in Washington, D.C. When then-President Obama gave him the Medal of Freedom, it was, it was emotional in Washington at the White House when he gave him that medal in the final years of the Obama administration. Uh, the man accomplished so much as a human being. So we think fondly of him. And if, we, if, if you really want to find out more about Bill Russell, just Google the name and see what he did, not just athletically, but what he did socially. Hell of a guy. Well, some people have said that he's the best team sports player of all time across all sports. Champion. I think that's the only word you can use to describe who he was, champion. Uh, and, and he played on only one team his entire career. And he played before a staunch old school guy in Red Auerbach. But he was an intellectual. When you consider coming from dirt poor Monroe, Louisiana, backwaters, to get to the University of San Francisco and to graduate, I mean, he was just intellectually over the top, and that impacted a lot of the things that he did as a social change guy. Somebody asked me on another talk show last week if I could equate Bill Russell and what he did with somebody else in sports, and the only name that came off the top of my head is is it Tony Dungy, uh, the great NFL coach turned broadcaster who has just tremendous social conscience in terms of dealing with things athletes are dealing with off the field, whether it's staying out of trouble, whether that's the hiring of African-American coaches. Tony Dungy is influential now in sports, especially the NFL, as Bill Russell was in society and the NBA. Special, special guys. Wow. Well, Lee, I mean, we've had a great conversation. I know you've got a lot going on on your website. Tell us about that. Well, I have a website that's all written. It's LeeHacksawHamilton.com. For all the people who like my sports talk show, the way it was structured, you get the exact same thing on my website, and it's in written form. I like to say, if you give me 10 minutes, I'll give you the world of sports, and you'll be the second smartest guy in the room aside from me. Uh, but we do best 15 minutes in sports. We do Hacksaw's Headlines. I write a one-man's opinion column every day of the week. We do some other notes with an NFL football notebook. And obviously now we have added our Hacksaw's Headlines podcast as part of our website. So it's LeeHacksawHamilton.com.
com. Right on, Lee. Well, thanks again for coming. This has been a great conversation, and uh, we'll, we'll, hopefully we'll see you next week. John, my pleasure as always. Thank you very much. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. Touchdown, San Diego! For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com. 